Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Do you need some help with your happiness or achieving your goals? Go to BetterHelp Online Counseling and get in touch with a licensed professional therapist in under 24 hours. No waiting rooms, no traffic. You do this online in a safe and private environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so you can change counselors if necessary at no additional cost. This service is available for clients worldwide. Financial aid is available. These are licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, you name it. Anything you share is confidential. This is a convenient, professional, affordable service. And best of all, as a listener of this program, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash other P-P-L. All right? Okay. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. How are you doing out there? I hope you're okay. I have Brian Allen Carr on the program today. He's got a novel out on Soho Press. It is called Opioid Indiana. Brian Allen Carr, Opioid Indiana. This is his second time on the program. I was looking through the archives, and I believe the last time we spoke was about seven and a half years ago, something like that. So a lot has happened for both of us, and it was good to catch up with him. That's coming up in just a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by Doubleday, publisher of the novel Pizza Girl, by Jean Kyung Frazier. Pizza Girl is a wildly original coming-of-age story about a pregnant pizza delivery girl who becomes obsessed with one of her customers. Named a most anticipated book of 2020 by Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Elle, Time Magazine, People, BuzzFeed, Bustle, and more. The New York Times book review calls Pizza Girl fresh, funny, and bittersweet. Pizza Girl by Jean Kyung Frazier, available now from Doubleday. Go get your copy. Okay, so another crazy week in America in 2020. It's like it, we've, we're halfway through 2020. I feel like I'm ready for it to be over. Are we? Are, have we had enough? Have we had enough of 2020? 
My guest today is Brian Allen Carr. His new novel, Opioid Indiana, is out there from Soho Press. It has been earning rave reviews, and it is just a pleasure to share this conversation with you now. Here he is, folks. This is Brian Allen Carr, and the new book, one more time, is called Opioid Indiana. One of the main ways that they've kind of argued that opioids have become such an issue is just that they've been overprescribed. And the, one of the main reasons they've been overprescribed is just kind of the way the hospital system works in general. And, right, there's this kind of like idea that pain is evil and you want to get rid of it. Um, and then, I mean, that's kind of the negative take on it. But so, anyway, when I was 13, I broke my ankle really bad in playing football. I wrote about it for the nervous breakdown not too long ago. Like my foot got twisted all the way around and I had to have a surgery and they put me on a, uh, I'm going to, uh, Demerol. And I was on Demerol for the whole time I was in there and I had like a button and every five minutes I could, I could use it and get jacked up. And then when I left, they gave me a prescription for Vicodin. Well, that was like 94. And so I got out of the hospital and I had pills and stuff and I took those for a while, but you really couldn't find pills then. And so I probably started and I started drinking probably a little before that, but I started drinking real hard after that. Um, and then when I was living up here when, and I've fought drinking for a long time, but when I was living up here, I, like I told you, I had that one year at Rose Holman. And then I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. So I tried to teach high school for a year. I did okay at it, but I didn't love it. It felt weird. I didn't like being an authority figure. But I had definitely had students whose families and friends OD'd, right? And um, and I don't know. I'm always kind of interested in why people will do a destructive thing, you know? Um, and it's not even just that kind of addiction, like, uh, you know, like I'll fuck with social media some, like I'll be, I'm on Twitter right now. I don't know how long that'll last, but it's clear to me when I go on Twitter that most people absolutely hate it or use it in a way that it's not good for them. Uh, but they do it anyway, you know, uh, or like this coronavirus stuff where people are aware that, you know, they shouldn't behave the way, you know, like people who have like even self quarantined or, or like going out and doing stuff and it, it's just really hard for people to uh, to get out of their own way, and I'm, I've always just been interested and in drawn to that. Like the the things that people will do uh, to get from point A to point B that don't always make all that much sense. That's kind of what's super intriguing to me. Well, and I think you know, I um, I was telling you before we came on. You know, I grew up in mm -hmm. part of my childhood in Indiana. Mm -hmm. um, I have some sense of the place in terms of mm -hmm. how it might be susceptible to this kind of uh, mm -hmm. phenomenon, you know, the rise of opioid addiction, methamphetamine addiction. And then I also, one of my childhood friends from Indiana, uh, I lost to an accidental opioid mm -hmm. overdose. So mm -hmm. this, this stuff, I mean, it's like, it's so uh, widespread. It's such a large problem that most of us either, you know, are, you know, one degree or two degrees or three degrees of separation away from somebody who has been taken by this or whose life has been, you know, seriously disrupted. Um, and I think when you talk about people stumbling, you know, trying to get from one point to the, to the next, what I think about, particularly when it comes to opioids and the root of the problem, which is in the medical system, which is in over prescribing these things as a way of trying to get rid of pain, 
is the word pain itself, you know, not just physical pain or some, you know, surgical uh, post-op pain, but the kind of the, the deeper uh, psychic or existential pain that human beings, you know, one way or another are grappling with and the way that these um, medications and the way that these narcotics are used to try to alleviate that. And, and I guess like, you know, for a short time, it can do the trick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that that's what a lot of people, yes, that, that temporary relief is, is, is what draws people into it. And then of course that temporary relief becomes all encompassing it, it, or it can, right. It doesn't always. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, pain is, is, is a big part of it. Lack of purpose, I think is another big part of it. And I don't necessarily know that that equates exactly to pain. Um, I, I feel like people just feel displaced or untethered and, if you feel that way, right, if you don't necessarily feel like you have a community, um, you're way more susceptible to things that are not productive for you. I mean, and people know this from, uh, you know, from like, think about like when you're a kid and you're grounded and you sit around all by yourself in your house and you ain't got shit to do and you feel terrible. But like if you had a buddy over with you and y'all were kind of doing the same thing, just sitting around doing nothing, it wouldn't feel so bad. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think pain is part of it. Loss, lack of purpose, lack of direction, too much free time, uh, accessibility to drugs. Um, and it doesn't even necessarily need to be opioids. I mean, and it doesn't even need to be a drug, right? I mean, you can get addicted to all kinds of shit and you can get caught up into all kinds of bad, uh, routines. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like, uh, social media you talked about mm -hmm. it a minute ago like that mm -hmm. that for me was an addiction undoubtedly oh, I, yeah. I was like i don't like this why am i, I feel like crap every time i go on this website and yet i'm on this website mm -hmm. like 44 times a day you know? mm -hmm. so, oh and you you know when you're in a social media binge you know like i mean so i i deactivate twitter all the time and i went for a long for a couple of years where i didn't use it i'm kind of on it right now just sort of messing around and I, I don't know how long I'll be on it. It's not so much that it makes me miserable, but it's just definitely a waste of my time. And I don't, in terms of uh, risk reward, you know, or just return on investment, I don't see a lot of people using it for especially writers, especially I think with publishers and some other media, it works a little bit differently, but like a fiction writer, there's no correlation between success in social media and success in publishing. Some people it correlates and some people it doesn't, but you can't across the board say, oh, if you have a strong social media following, you'll have a good publishing career. And you can't across the board say, if you do terrible at social media, your books won't sell. It, it, there's no equation to it. Um, and so, but like, I've definitely looked up from wasting four five, six hours on social media for reasons that I couldn't explain to you. And it's not like I'm getting fulfilled. I'm not learning anything. I do like, uh, talking to people who I haven't seen for a long time, but for the most part, I'd be better off making a few phone calls, sending a few texts, reading a book and mowing my lawn. I mean, isn't it, I mean, you, isn't it something like, uh, I, I think of what you were saying about community, you know, people not having a purpose or not having a sense mm -hmm. of community and why we, you know, why we turn to drugs or why we, you know, suddenly find ourselves, um, 
you know, doing crystal meth or whatever it is. And uh, maybe, I, I guess I have a, a strong suspicion a lot of the time that the way we're just organized socially uh, is not healthy for people. <laughs> uh, you know, the way, and I think like economic, you know, economics factor into it. It's not like a simple, clean um, situation. You know, there's a lot that goes into it, but I, I tend to subscribe to the notion that we need and flourish best when we have large extended family and they're close well, and they're close by. Yes. And I think kind of what we've done is we've extended our now, which is going to sound weird, but like we've used all these different technologies to enable us to have a vast and quick reach across humanity. And it's extended our now so that right. Like I can know almost simultaneously something that's happening in Italy inside of my own living room almost simultaneously right but what that does is i think it diminishes your presence right and the present and like you just being locked into people who are actually around you you know when i was a kid people used to say if you have if you know i think it was like in the beginning of another indiana uh based artwork (laughs) that movie now and then (laughs) and at the beginning of it the girl says like my mom used to tell me if you can count the amount of friends you have on one hand then you're doing good and it, I, when I was a kid, you needed four or five friends. That was it. But you needed to know the fuck out of them. And you needed them to be the type of people where you were being a dipshit, they would fucking tell you. And now it's like, nah, you just need to know so many fucking people that once you act like a dipshit, then you can transfer over to your other people and you can bounce around like that forever. And then I don't know. I just don't think there's as much accountability. We've kind of turned into an acquaintance-based culture uh, which is great for capitalism, but it's terrible for life. Right. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, it's like I, I've been. I had a conversation recently with somebody on this show who was expressing a lot of optimism about the you know young people today and the future generation. I, I hope so much that it's true. You know that that the young people coming up behind us have their shit together better than you know we have or our elders have. But I, I wonder about the social abilities um, of people raised, you know, kind of in, in this digital existence that we live from cradle to, you know, one would imagine grave, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I, I at least have some memory of, of the time before all this, when you actually had to call people up and like, hang oh, out I- with people. And I'm, you know, I'm wondering like, is it doing something to our ability to empathize? Is it doing something to our ability to relate to one another when we can exist in these like siloed digital environments, um, you know, at a significant remove from one another. And with, like you said, just like this wide access to a lot of people at once. I think the answer is probably yes and no. I mean, I I think that what kind of ends up happening, you can't always transfer your clout in the digital world to the physical world. Right. And so you're almost getting these two, different societies societies that care more about what's happening on the platforms and then societies that care more about what's happening in the community and and, i mean that's not a clean break it's of course a spectrum um but i mean i don't know it's weird I, i think that younger people they'll definitely think of it differently than we did we we straddled the divide and so i mean like when i was a kid the internet was only for porn like you like, no, I'm serious. If you talked to somebody on the internet, like when I was 13, if you, if you got on the internet and you talked to somebody 
the going theory was that's really an adult who's going to try to have sex with you. Like literally that's what the internet was when I was a kid. And then it evolved into this other thing that like had information, but let's say you were going to a college class, you couldn't cite that fucking information. You couldn't use it as like, Oh, this is a valid source of info. And then it's transferred into this thing where like the news reports about people's tweets, you know? And so, um, I don't know. I mean, there's clearly an argument for it being a sort of beta uh, type for a simulation life, you know? I mean, I don't know. It's bizarre. Like, I, I quit kind of trying to wrap my head around it, I think, because, like, everything that I thought we might have when I was a kid, we've surpassed. We don't have flying cars, but that was always fucking stupid. But an iPhone is way better than I thought I'd ever have in my fucking pocket, you know? I mean, like, not... I. I I didn't even have the ability to grasp that. Like, think about the video games that we played. And now, like, look, you see a video of me in my in my house right now. That's insane. Can you imagine watching a video of somebody talking when you were twelve? It would you would have shat your fucking pants. I thought three way. I thought I thought three way calling was cool. Oh, dude, it was the shit, right? You you had that one friend who sounded like an adult. You'd three-way call people, and he would, like, fake rent cars and order pizzas and shit. And it was crazy. Yeah, three-way calling, call, uh, call waiting, uh, your own phone line in a house. These are things that are now completely and totally obsolete. It's a trip. So let me go back to when you broke your ankle as a <laughs> right. high school student because you had this Vicodin subscription and you had Demerol in the mm. hospital mm-hmm. and you said that you struggled um, with alcohol for a long time and, and you're, mm. now, you're now sober. I mean, I am currently right now sober and I've been sober for a while, but I don't, there's no, addiction sucks, bro. Like there's no like, oh, I'm sober now. You know what I mean? Like, so, um, yeah, I'm not ne- never ending. <laughs> Have you been without for a while? Uh, yeah, but not so long that like I can be hardcore about it. Right. Okay. So you I was just I, mean? I was just curious. Like, so when you got the Vicodin uh, prescription mm-hmm. after you got out of the hospital with this really badly broken ankle, um, did you notice? you know, as you went through the the prescription that you wanted more, did you have like a reaction to it that was noticeable and and maybe an indicator? It's hard to say at the time I was living in Plano, Texas. And so there was actually heroin and heroin issues there. And it was one of those towns where kids wandered around and just got fucked up at an early age. So like, even before I broke my ankle, we used to run around stealing stuff out of people's garages And one of the main things you would steal is like alcohol out of their garage refrigerators. Um, My assumption is, is that what that probably did prior to me getting my broken ankle is it primed me to be aware that you could get fucked up and that that could feel cool. And then so when I was in the hospital, my Demerol button that they gave me, I could press every five minutes and get a hit. And the doctor was like, yeah, but you'll only be able to get two and you'll pass out. And so, like, I was like, fuck that. I'm going to see how many I can get. I think I got up to six. And um, and 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 then, yeah, I mean, like, when I left, I had my Vicodins, and we would take those, me and my buddies, and drink with them and stuff. And, you know, I mean, so I don't know. I, there's always this debate raging, like, if you go to NA or AA or whatever, it's like, uh, you know, or out, uh, 
addicts made or born, right? And it's probably a little bit of both. Um, definitely the the opioid stuff didn't uh, make me less interested <laughs> in getting uh, fucked up or whatever. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, okay, so when you talk about, because this is an interesting question, I, I think there's got to be something to genetic mm-hmm. uh, transference, or maybe, I, you know, I guess you could you could maybe fold that into like nurture as well. Like if you have a mm-hmm. parent who, who struggles with a substance and they're in front of you every day, then that's mm-hmm. going to have, that's going to leave its imprint on you. But when you, when you reflect, like, do you have, can you trace it like through your family line and then um, on the nurture side or on the, you know, on the addicts are made side of the equation, like was it, were there events or things that happened to you that you look back on and you go, Oh wow. I was trying to, I was trying to get some pain relief. Um, yeah, all of the above. I mean, so my grandfather lied about his age and went to World War II when he was like 16, 15, 16. And he got all like, you know, he came home with four Purple Hearts and then he drank until he died at the age of 48. And alcoholism and drug usage was fairly rampant in my family. That said, my mom and dad, like my dad doesn't have a drinking issue at all and my mom didn't really drink until she was about 50 um so it's weird man it it it, uh if there were probably certain events i was a preacher's kid i had a lot of anxiety um so there was probably part of me wanting to assuage aspects of that but then it's weird man like so if you go and sit in recovery rooms People will talk about a lot. You get a mixture, dude. You'll get people who are like, nobody in my family was ever an addict, and then I became one. And then you'll get like, but you'll also meet people whose parents were absolute addicts and shitheads, and they're like, nah, I'm just not really into it. You know, it's a weird mix, man. There's really no, I don't think there's any equation for anybody with it. Um, And 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 I only say that because I don't think there's any equation to you know, why places like, you know, Indiana have maybe have a bigger opioid issue than other places. Um, I think that in our current society, we like to think that there's a reason that things happen. And I don't know that there's always reasons, you know, I don't know that there are. Maybe not one, you know, it's maybe some, no, it's yeah, some, some confluence, you know, it's like economics. I can see playing a role. Mm -hmm. I can see, um, 
the winter, <laughs> the Indiana I think, winter. I think that I think the grayness plays a huge part. I, I think that um, for sure. And now that said, though, I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, or at least when I was a kid. We used to call that a sunny place for shady people. You know, there are fuck tons of meth in Corpus. Uh, and it was a beautiful, sunny town on the beach. And everybody had jobs and we all and people did meth. You know, I, I don't it's ah, dude, it's a it's a it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. Part of it's pop culture, right? Because drugs come along with music and art. And, and then, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily think drugs are entirely bad, um, people have always gotten fucked up. People haven't always lived for 75 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, hundred years ago, the, the average human lifespan was like 20 years less than it used to be. But you know what? People got fucked up a couple hundred years before that. It was even shorter, but you know what? People got fucked up. So I don't know, man. I have no idea. Yeah. I think, I mean, like p- people have always wanted to, you know, mess with their consciousness. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and it, I and, mean, and, and it's any system that you're in. You could like write Native Americans did peyote and shit like it, it's not like and I'm sure some of them to an extent that was disgusting and they were just like living off the land and had all the purpose in the world, perhaps. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know, man. I think some people are just uh, fucked up, you know, like <laughs> uh, like just the, the way some people are depressed or some people are funny or some people are tall. <laughs> and then but I don't you... know, maybe not. You mentioned that you were a preacher's kid, or you are a preacher's mm-hmm. kid, and I'm trying to remember if we talked about this the first time. This was seven years ago, so my brain, you know, good luck. <laughs> um, I, who knows? It's hard to say. <laughs> and you said you you said you had some anxiety. Like, is that just natural temperament, or was it tied to the fact that you were a preacher's kid? Again, I think it was tied to the fact that I was a preacher's kid. So when you're a preacher's kid, you're always on display, right? Like, so when you're five, you're a portion of your father's job. Right. So like if you go to church and you act like a shithead, uh, then you're that's a reflection upon your father's ability to do his profession. And right. I mean, like in a in a very real way, if if you don't know enough Bible quotes or something, that's a reflection on your father's profession. And if your father's not good at his profession, well, then he shouldn't be able to keep his job. And if he can't keep his job, well, then y'all are fucked. You know what I mean? So, and that was never articulated to me in so many words, but you sure as shit picked up on it pretty quick. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that probably had to do with, or that probably led to me, you know, doing a lot of different things as coping mechanisms. And one of them was probably creating a very intense inner narrative. And that's probably why I even fuck with writing today. You know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, like as you were saying that, I was like, God, you know, if you're the if you're the preacher and you're supposedly godly and you've got mm-hmm. a, kind of a more direct line to the higher power, yeah, you, you you would think that somebody with those kinds of credentials would have like a really well behaved, mm-hmm. uh, you know, super um, orderly and admirable family life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you know, I mean, and so. Yeah, it's like so. Let's like like a typical Sunday for me is like we'd get up, we'd go to church. I had to sing in choir, and I had to be like one of the best, right? And like we did handbells or whatever, and I had to be one of the best at that. And then we would go eat lunch with like some member of the congregation, and then like you'd have to sit there and listen to their boring fucking stories, and you couldn't get up and leave because like yeah, Sunday was work, you know. Sunday was work. It was a trip, man. And uh, but I don't think that's only 
just preachers' kids. There's probably a lot of jobs where that. Well, no, it's pretty. We're we're a small little group. When we when you when a preacher's kid meets another preacher's kid, well, there's either really kind of two options: either they're churchy as fuck and they become preachers too, or there's this kind of like, did it fucking suck? <laughs> and so you you'll kind of like you find out really quick whether or not that person's churchy, and if they are, you're just like, well, you know, cool. And if they're not churchy, then you're like, wasn't it a fucking pain in the ass? So like my my uh, my sister's husband, his dad was a preacher too, and uh, same kind of situation. And we'll sit and hang out and you know bitch about what it was like to be a preacher's kid all the time. It's a trip, man. So, but you didn't. You don't sound like you're very churchy. Like you moved away from it. Uh, my kids go to church with their grandparents. My wife and I don't. I did for a little bit. I got them baptized. I don't hate church, but I have been incapable of shaking the anxiety. So, like, when I go to church, man, and I'm there, I, I, it's so tense. Even if everybody's nice as hell, uh, I just do the smell of the Bibles and the smell of candles and shit. I get all like, ugh, fuck this shit. <laughs> but I, I'm, my kids go, but they don't go as preacher's kids, you know what I mean? They go, and I like them to know what the Bible says, I guess, even if I don't 100% buy into it. Um, I think people need uh, a religion or a philosophy to, to, to measure the world against, even if they don't 100% believe in it. So my kids go to church, but like we also, we're, it's a fairly agnostic house here. Yeah. What is what was the uh, denomination that your father was a preacher in? Presbyterian. Oh, we okay. were Presbyterian. Yeah, and I mean, it, like my dad was a good enough dude, and it, it was cool. Like it wasn't like a it wasn't a, a pro it probably sounds darker than it actually was. It wasn't so much that like being a preacher's kid was terrible. You just knew, right? You just kind of, you knew all the time that like if you did something at school that was stupid somebody would tell a congregation member and your dad would find it. it was just a vast network of like being sort of uh watched in in a way that's probably not dissimilar to social media <laughs> it prepared you well <laughs> no because i hate social media well maybe yeah i don't know it's possible <laughs> so you uh it seems like as a high school student you i mean you sound fairly no sounds familiar to me anyway like i was drinking mm -hmm. beer and we were mm -hmm. what was it? we called the garage hopping you would break into your neighbor's yep, garage garage hopping yep. take their take their wine coolers or whatever 100 mm -hmm. percent. yeah um but so we, do you feel like in retrospect you were like acting out against maybe like a, the expectations that were that you felt being the son of a preacher uh yes and no i think that Probably being the son of a preacher made me gravitate towards certain types of movies, stories, and music that were a little bit against the grain of conformity and religion. And in those stories, right, like so, you know, think about like the movies Goodfellas or whatever, there's kids being dipshits. I don't know, I always wanted to be, uh, I always wanted to be counterculture. I don't necessarily know that it, if you asked me, like, hey, do you think, you know, at the time, like, do you think you garage hop because, like, your dad's a preacher? <laughs> I, 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 I would have, you know, no. But, you know, at the same time, I just, I, I was probably trying to emulate people who I had selected as heroes from pop culture, right? And that might be Sid Vicious or Ice Cube or something. But, 
you know, all those stories about things that they had done, I don't know, they made me excited and I wanted to do comparable things. Um, I didn't want to, the worst thing you could be when I was a kid was a poser. Um, and so, and still today, I, I hate when people are posers. And so like, I liked all this type of, I like, I knew from a fairly early on age that I wanted to create rated R art. And, um, and so I was like, well, you can't create rated R art. At least this was my stupid logic back then without doing some stupid shit. And so I did stupid shit. <laughs> so, and what did your folks think of this? Was it like, it's cause like Presbyterian, I feel like, is that, that's not hardcore. Like, I feel like no. there, there, there are way more hardcore denominations where there are people speaking in tongues and, you know, yes. yeah, we but, were... but were your parents pushing you? Like when you were like, Hey, I love Sid Vicious. Were they like, okay, this is, he's a teenager or were they trying to dissuade you? They put me in charter behavioral hospital for liking rap music when I was 13. <laughs> I don't know. They, I don't know, dude. It was a trip. Like I was an embarrassment to them, you know, like, uh, my dad wait, did, was, a... wait, did they really, they put you oh, in yeah. a behavior? Yeah. Yeah. I was in, well, I was 14. It was right after my, it was after I broke my ankle. It was that summer. So yeah, I went to, I dropped out of eighth grade <laughs> <laughs> and I went to a charter behavioral mental health institution. And uh, part of it was because, like, of the type of art that I liked. And then part of it was just, a, you know, I was a fucking shithead, you know. I was, a, I was skipping school and stealing guns and breaking stuff and being a dipshit. You know? Damn. Wow. It was okay. Hard. Yeah, no, I was hardcore. Like, I've probably been arrested 15 times. Um. Yeah, dude, I've. I'm a, yeah, I'm, you know, I mean, until I became an adult, which was yesterday, <laughs> I, uh, no, yeah, I've gotten into all kinds of run-ins and troubles and yeah, it's just, I don't know why exactly. Mostly like alcohol related and stuff like that or what else? L little bit. And then just, I, uh, you know, issues with authority. And then once you get arrested once, I'm pretty certain something gets in your eyes and then, and then cops just see that you've been arrested before. Like, I don't know what it is, man. You, you, we, once you've been arrested one time, cops can spot it. it it's the thing is, is, I think that you ever seen that movie Memento where that a long dude time ago. Okay. So every, the, the whole premise behind that is there's this disease where every five minutes you lose your short term memory. And then, but like, even if you have that, there's like a, you'll recognize if somebody else recognizes you. And then like, you're like, Oh, you recognize me. We know each other. So probably if I'm doing something stupid and I look at a cop, there's this weird recognition where the cop's like, this dude's fucking stupid. And I'm like, fuck, this dude might know I'm fucking stupid. And it just gets buried in there the way that DNA gets buried in there. And and then, you know, you have issues. <laughs> so have you ever been uh, – I mean, obviously you've probably spent the night in jail. But did you ever mm. get in trouble for something so much that you had to be incarcerated? Never been in prison, only been in jail. <laughs> I'm, I made it. I made it to county. Never did anything like real. You know, my biggest issues were if I, uh, yeah, if, alcohol played a huge part in it, and then just anti-authoritarian. Like if you know, um, if a cop was gonna give me shit, I was gonna give him shit back. Which, okay. which is stupid. I was gonna say that, that doesn't <laughs> tend to work out that well. And by the way, if there's one like or. 
There are, I guess, a few things that uh, prevail in my memory from my youth in Indiana, one mm. of which is how uh, how frightened I was of the police. Sure. Because they fuck with teenagers there. Oh, all, We used to yeah. joke that they just had nothing better to do. I don't know if mm. it was the same for you in Texas, but, like, I remember I got to college in Boulder, and I was at, like, some party, you know, somewhere, and somebody, like, mentioned that there were, like, some cops outside, and I freaked the fuck out. Like, I was, yeah. like, down on the floor, you know? Like, yeah. I, was, I was, like, hiding behind the couch, and people were like, what are you doing? You know, like, they're not going to come in. You know, like, it was a much more, uh, like, a much friendlier college town kind of vibe. But when I grew up, man, if the cops were coming, they were, they were like stormtroopers. They were coming for you. It, I think it's, honestly... I think it's township to township, county to county. You were in Carmel, right? I bet you it was a little bit denser there. It was the same way in Plano, but then like when I lived in Corpus Christi, Texas, much more chill. Um, and I don't know. I mean, and, and different people have different reactions with police officers, and some of that is race-based, and some of it is socioeconomic and all these different kinds of things. So last time I got arrested... I was in my bunkie was this guy named Trap Trey, and he was a rapper, a, a black kid from from Ohio. And uh, we were in there together, and we were talking, and I was explaining to him this game that we used to play called Dodge Cop. And my buddies and I, we would stand in the middle of a road, and we'd pretend to fight until a cop came, and then we'd run. And uh, I was telling him about it. He's like, "Holy shit, we played the same game, <laughs> except." We just called the cops on ourselves. Like they would call the cops and be like, hey, there's some kids breaking into this house. And then they would run. And uh, I don't know what that is, you know, exactly. But I would always, you know, as you grow up, you know, especially me, like in retrospect, as I get older and I'm like, God damn, you know, I've gotten arrested a bunch of times. And then you hear you and like there's the whole Black Lives Matter thing and stuff. And sometimes I sit around. I'm like, dude, if I was black, I probably would have been shot by now. But Trap Trey played that game a lot more than I did. <laughs> like he was explaining it to me, and I so I don't I don't know, dude. But he was a super affable person, and he'd been arrested some, but his arrest sounded a little bit less uh, hardcore than mine. So I don't know, man. Arrests, it's weird. It's uh, American boys, I think, are just raised to be anti-authoritarian. I think there's also boredom. I mean, you, yeah. when, you, when you start calling the cops on yourself, you're fucking bored. Or, yeah, you're, yes, exactly. But, too, I mean, you know, he, he grew up playing football and stuff. Yeah, boredom's part of it. But, you know, I don't know, like 100 years ago, like, what did you do to pass the time? You probably took a rifle out and shot some shit or, I don't know, went fishing. I don't know. It, it, it's odd. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what all that is. We definitely about, we like adversity. What about anger? What about like growing up? Did you feel like you have any anger or like other um, big emotions that you were kind of working working out? Yeah, but not probably. It's odd because I don't really feel like that a lot of like you know getting in trouble with the law or doing stupid stuff like that. I never really saw it as um, as as acting out. I always, and this was probably just me, you know, framing it for myself in a way that made life more palatable, but I always kind of saw it as like research or like, I don't know, I mean, exa deeply examining that aspect of life. 
And I know that sounds stupid or wrong, but like so many of my heroes, like when I was growing up, you'd read like books by, you know, people who were in bands and this and this and that. And um, they got into trouble. I thought you were supposed to. I thought you were I thought you were supposed to get kicked out of school. I thought you were supposed to get arrested. So, and I thought and so I thought wait, that wait. was the way to be an artist. Hmm? What were you reading? Like what were who were your art heroes that were getting kicked out of school? Uh, where... William S. Burroughs, Urban Welsh, John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix quit school. I mean like uh, Jim Morrison had quit college of course, but it was a little bit later, but like so you know, all these just kind of degenerate type people. I really liked Sid Barrett, who had, you know, gotten all fucked up on drugs and flopped out of Pink Floyd. I loved N.W.A. I loved uh, the Sex Pistols. Like, almost everything that I liked was anti-authoritarian, but beautiful at the same time. I've always been into juxtaposition, you know, and so... But I didn't really... In my head, I wasn't being a criminal or doing anything stupid. I was either trying to like gain some type of legitimacy or just really deeply, I was interested in all aspects of life and even the fucked up parts of it. You're like, you're like, you don't understand mom and dad. This, uh, this is field research. I'm, I'm studying. I mean, yeah, pretty much. I'd tell them that at the time too, you know, it's like fucking everybody gets in trouble. Who's worth the shit, you know? And like, it's not true. I was a kid, you know, I was a young man and, What's kind of weird about our society is we we judge people so harshly on the decisions they make when they're 16 and 17, right? Because if you go to an Ivy League school or a super good college when you're 18 years old, that's the that's because you made good decisions when you were 16, you know? That's fucked up, dude. So you're telling me that somebody at 16 is making, right, permanent life decisions in our society? Like somebody who's not old enough to drink, probably hasn't been laid, never had a job, and the things that they do for that fucking year determine the the, the path of their life, that's fucking insane. And I was pretty much against that at a young age. I was like, that's fucking stupid. I'm not playing that game. And I was like, I you know, I knew pretty young that like this is about what I would be. I'm a forty one year old rated R writer who figures out how to get through fucking life that's what i wanted to be 100 hmm. percent. yeah i know it's interesting i think i think back on my own youth and at that particular time in life and uh, you know i've talked to a lot of people over the years many of whom went to ivy league schools mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, on and there's, the show. There's, there's nothing wrong with that but you also have to understand that we live in a society that says hey kid you made a great decision at 16 so uh, now every job you ever apply to, you're probably going to get an interview. <laughs> Not probably, but dude, it's a lot easier to get an interview if you have Harvard on your fucking resume. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't no, hurt. No, no. And, 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 but again, that's because at 16, you made good decisions. Yeah. I, you I, get, you, you get your acceptance letter for Harvard when you're 17. And then everything's, you know, and, changes I mean, everything. It changes everything. I mean, like, and I'm not saying that, like, once you get that acceptance letter, shit's going to go good for you. But that's a pretty good fucking run and start. Whereas, as opposed to, like, somebody who grew up in an abusive household, and so they fucking didn't go to school. So you're going to punish a 16-year-old for living in an abusive household? All right, cool. Great society. Love being a part of it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and, and I... 
I was aware of that at a very young age. And I think maybe being a preacher's kid made me aware of that. Like, I I thought that our society has been a sham since I was like seven. (laughs) Because of what? Because I was a preacher's kid and I, I saw all the congregants and they were all full of fucking shit and they were supposed to be adults. I mean, I'm 41. I'm supposed to be an adult right now. And I don't meet people who are more mature than me. That's insane. That's insane. And uh, and that's just the way it's always been. I mean, we romanticize things. Oh, back in the day, people were mature. They were not. My grandfather drank himself to death at 48. He was a World War II hero. If he was mature, he wouldn't have fucking drank himself to death. You know? Um, I don't know. It's a trip, man. I find I find it interesting that your grandfather lied to get into war. I feel like things that's flipped. Worth, it's like that's a couple couple a couple generations later, people were lying to get out of war. I think that's still where we are. You don't have too many people trying to get in when they're 15, 16 years old. I think it's a couple different reasons. It used to be the best way to get out of the lower class, right? Have you seen Hamilton where Hamilton's all like the, in the plays, like, I wish there was a war, right? Like he wants there to be a war so he can prove himself out of his class. And I think that's what my grandfather wanted to do. He was like, if I go to war, I can maybe come back and fucking be somebody. And that's what he did. Because, I mean, he, you know, he he was like super low class. And uh, and he came back and because he was a World War II hero, he could sell insurance. You know, he was like, I went over and I fought in the war and I have four Pearl hearts. You know, give me a fucking job. Okay. But when they, yeah. they had like the GI Bill and the World War II vets, they got some, mm-hmm. some deserved benefits. But what I'm was saying, his what was his uh, like his combat experience? It must have been pretty heavy if he came back he, and drank so he, much. He was in Japan, um, and I don't know the extent of like exactly where he was at. I know his Purple Hearts. Um, he got shot in the head, so like the bullet hit his helmet, circled around a few times, and entered his head. But he had a uh, metal plate in his head. Um, his buddy was walking beside him and a grenade blew up and pitched him up into a tree. And so he had shrapnel in his leg and then his feet were frozen to the point where they were supposed to be amputated, but he wouldn't let him amputate him. And so he got, I think he got two purple hearts, one for each foot, the grenade explosion, and then the shot to the head. Did the grenade kill his buddy? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. But I mean, I never met him. So all of these stories are like, you know, I my grandmother told them to me and stuff. And but he also I mean, but then also, you know, I heard the stories of the aftermath of that. He would wake up, you know, in uh, PTSD rages, strangling my grandmother, thinking that he was at war, you know. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, like just uh, I think any one of those incidents would be enough to send somebody into like therapy for life. Yeah, and they didn't, and of course back then they didn't have it, you know. So he was an alcoholic slash abusive father, and then you know that trickled into my mom, and I mean it's a life's fucked up, man. But then yeah. again, too, again he wanted to go, and he was happy that he went. He was proud to be that. Like my other grandfather didn't go to war and wished he had. It's it was a different time. Yeah, totally and, and, it, and it was a just war. Like if any of the wars had been just, at least in the branding of it, the framing of it, that was a really good one. 
<laughs> if, if you were gonna fight one dude that was the one to fight in you know yeah i agree i agree hitler hitler is enemy like we can make sense of this 100 you know? they had uniforms and shit it was, they had an ethos to 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 destroy it was a trip so i want to talk to you some more about um indiana sure you know like you wrote this book since you've been there this was all mm-hmm. written while in indiana mm-hmm and was it written post-Trump elected, or was it started before that? I wrote it, let's see. I started it the day after Black Panther came out, the movie, or the weekend after, and I finished it six weeks after that. So this was after Trump by a year? By a year. He had been president for a year. Okay. And so what, what is Black Panther? Like, why does that stand out in your mind? Just because you just happened to remember it or did it have some significance? I went to it and it's in the book. <laughs> like, so on the, I went and saw it on the same day that I make Riggle go see it in the book. And the only reason I did that is because I wanted to, I wanted it to be really anchored in actual time. Um, and so like, if you kind of go back through and sort of pick the book apart, um, real weather events, real days, real things happening. Um, yeah. And I, I, I mean, so it just happened around that time and I wanted, yeah. So like I, I wrote it almost simultaneously as the, the book was happening, kind of like the book takes place in about a week, but then there's some, there's an right. It's framed a little bit with some, with some stuff that happens at different times. Um, the majority of the book happens within a week, but I wrote it at around the same time that all that took place. And six weeks. Yeah. So when I started it, I emailed my agent and my, my editor, did I email my editor? I emailed my agent. I was like, I have a book bouncing out of me. I'm going to send it to you in a few weeks. And, and I'll do that a lot. Like I'll make promises that I have to then keep, um, you know what I mean? Like, so for that, I was like, I wanted to write something in a very small amount of time, um, about that amount of time. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it was quick, man. It was a, it was a really quick write for me. When did you do, when do you do the work? If you got your, your day job, how do you, and you have fan and you have a family, how do you fit it in? Well, dude, and when I wrote this book, I was teaching full time at high school and I was teaching, adjuncting two classes at the local community college. I, my, I'm always writing in my head in terms of trying to plot stuff. And I type fast as fuck. And with that particular book, I mean, yeah, I just here and there, I just grab time here and there during my lunch breaks in commutes during whatever downtime. I, I'm, I'm real working class about writing. I'm like, you have to write 30 pages this week or, or else. And I just do it. And, um, I just, and I've always kind of found that if I prod myself to do something, then it gets done and then I can at least repair. But like some of my favorite writers wrote like, like Jim Thompson to me is like an absolute hero and he wrote quick and, and, in high volume. And so, you know, and so what about, uh, in, I'm, I'm curious, just as a, a former Indiana resident, mm-hmm. I'm curious to know about the political environment 
um, you know, that you find yourself in now and that figures in a little bit to the book is um, Indiana in the age of Trump, because and I've talked about this like more than once, uh, you know, about Indiana and how it has a kind of southern flavor. So there's a lot of Confederate flags in Indiana, which is in the book. And like, so um, I don't know if that predates Trump or not. There's a lot of Trump flags that people fly. There's a lot of Trump supporters in this area. Um, And there's a lot of people who like Trump who aren't absolute assholes. You know, it's it's a trip, man. The whole world is really confusing to me because I definitely know Trump supporters who I don't hate and who I don't think are evil human beings. And I, I, you know, who was, there was some writer a few, like maybe a month ago, God damn it, I can't remember who it was, but who had written like a New Yorker piece about how she liked Trump's voice. Oh, that was, um, Lori, that was Lori Moore. Yeah. And I think there must be something hyper visceral and like, she's got to be explaining something to us in a way, like, some people must just gravitate towards him here. Ted Cruz makes me feel sick to my fucking stomach when I see him. Some people see Ted Cruz and they're like, I like that guy. Just a literal picture of him before I ever knew what his politics were or anything. I just thought he was a creepy motherfucker. And some people see him and they don't think so. And I think that's kind of Trump to a lot of people, too. I don't even think they really think about what the fuck it is that he says or does. Just something in their DNA makes them like him. And you could say it's racism and it very well could be. I don't know. But I definitely know some people who are Trump supporters who you wouldn't necessarily call racist. They're loud and stupid, but they're not racist. Um, And then – but then there's also Trump supporters who are. I, it's a trip, man. I, I don't really know, but I there definitely seem to be a lot of people here who wish that Indiana had been a Confederate state, which is a stupid fucking thing to think because I'm here to tell you, being a Confederate state fucked up Confederate states pretty damn good. Like Texas would have been a fucking miracle had they not joined the Confederacy. Um, my across the street neighbor a few a few Mother's Days ago put up a Confederate flag on his front porch. And I was like, I just went outside. I was like, Hey, are you from the South? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, why are you flying that flag? I was like, I'm from Texas. I sure as shit don't want to see it flying in fucking union soil. I don't like seeing it in Texas either, but what the fuck are you flying it here for? Um, I made him take it down. We've patched things up. (laughs) How did he he respond? How did he respond? Uh, Um, he, he apologized to me because he, dude, this is going to be, this is kind of a trip. I drive a Prius and I had a, a, a sign in my yard that said love more. There's a girl here named, a woman here named Erin Davis who, uh, who has this brand called love more. And it's essentially, you know, trying to go for uh, inclusivity and everything. And he basically was like, Oh dude, uh, I thought since you drove a Prius and had a love more uh, sign that you were one of those types of people. That's literally what he said to me. And I was like, I don't know what you mean by that, but you, you need to take that fucking flag down. Um, and he essentially was like, he thought because I had that car and that sign, I mean, and that's why he hung the flag up. He told me that like, he was like 
gonna intimidate me and i'm like no i'll kick your fucking ass um i mean and i'm not like a hardcore motherfucker but like you can't fly a confederate flag across the street from me in indiana you can't sorry um it's not gonna happen and part of it is because i think the confederate flag represents racism but then a bigger deeper part of that is just like this is a union state y'all beat us at war and fucking we paid the penalty for that you can't pretend that you didn't you know i mean it's weird why would you fly that um it's a, it's the a, right side of history i was gonna say it's like the, it's the most moronic kind of appropriation like, mm-hmm. like I don't... it is it's a trip it's a trip and i don't know and he even said he's like it's you know it's it's not it's not uh hatred it's just you know history and like you're a fucking moron but and then but you know what then uh about a week ago uh well two weeks after that i was walking home you know at night and he had taken down the Confederate flag. And I was like, hey, man, thanks for taking down the Confederate flag, dude. That's that's pretty cool. And he was like, I noticed you still have your Love More sign up. And I was like, well, do you want me to take it down? He's like, no, nah, that's fine. I was like, nah. And I took it down. And in my mind, like, then that sign served its purpose. You know, like, he did something that made me feel more comfortable. So then I did something to make him feel more comfortable, too. And since then, we don't, you know, I talk to him. Hey, bud, how you doing? Everything going good? This and this, that. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. There, It is moronic for somebody like that to fly a Confederate flag, but it's got to come from a deep sense of something that I don't quite understand. And while it, it's culturally okay for me to be angry at him about that, I mean, just think if he had some other sort of mental malady. And I'm not trying to justify what he did or anything, but like, well, let's say I went over there and he was clearly autistic, you know, I, I mean, and then what do I even do? I'm, you know, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that you engaged with him in the first place. I don't know if that's something that everybody would do, you know, because of some fear, like, how's he going to react? What kind of, does, yeah. does this guy have guns? <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm sure he does. Again, though, I mean, I've been to jail. <laughs> like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I mean, like, I don't know. I'm sure he has a gun in his house. You don't put a Confederate flag on your front porch if you don't have a gun in your house. I, I don't like, know. I know, but I, I mean, I think I like the idea of trying to communicate through that. Like, it's not okay to have that flag up. It, you should say no. something. You should you say have something. To. You have, yeah. and, and honestly, I'm in... I'm lucky and like, let's just say I'm from Indiana. Well, and I don't have the argument that, Hey dude, I'm from the South. You can't fly that. What do I even say to him? What do I even say? Hey, you're a racist piece of shit. You need to take that down. Well, I just lost that argument. In fact, he might go inside and get his gun. But if I say to him, Hey dude, I'm from the South. You need to take that down. He'll take it down. It right. doesn't matter what my reason is. He'll take it the fuck down. But again, it's a touchy world, man. It's a touchy. It's a touchy and an odd world, man. Who knows? Do you uh, do you but, think any has anything? But, he, but he's, he's a sweetheart now. Yeah, I mean, well, that's shifted, I mean, like, well, I mean, I'm just gonna say, like, to your point, and then I'll get to my next question. Is like, mm-hmm. it's it's very tempting to believe that anybody at least from my perspective, it's tempting to believe that everybody who voted for Trump or is, is into MAGA or whatever is um, yeah. just kind of like a, 
irretrievably nuts, but it's more complicated than that. You know, there are family members or people you might come uh, come across in your day-to-day life, whether it's a neighbor or a friend of a friend or anybody, you know, could, you could run into who you don't have uniformly negative feelings about. And I think the same is true in reverse. And it's it's just worth remembering that there is this middle ground somewhere where it's like, hey, you know, I actually like uh, having a beer with you or talking to you. Your politics are nuts. <laughs> so uh, is there a way for us to kind of communicate and find some way to, I don't know, make this a saner country? I think you can only persuade somebody if you're not on the polar opposite of the spectrum as them. I am very much a moderate, right? Uh, in that, I don't know, I just am. I'm a Democrat from Texas. So... I could talk to conservative people pretty easily and be like, hey, dude, I don't really think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And here's why. And I have a lot of like patience with them because I'm not so far off onto the other side. Now, my friends who are on the far left, I can hang out and chat with them, too. What you can't ever get, I've never seen this happen. Somebody on the far left, somebody on the far right, talk to each other and persuade each other. They just repel. They repel. And so it's the duty of everybody who's in the middle or kind of closer to the middle to act as a conduit and to try to get people to start seeing things the right way. Um, I think there needs to be more really vocal moderates right now. People who will engage with people on both sides you cannot have somebody on the far left persuade somebody on the far right. It doesn't. It'll never work. Um, and the only I'm so like there, are a, a, but both sides are getting further away. I, I literally don't. I cannot tell you right now that I think people on the far left are less insane than people are on the far right. I think that they're erring on the side of caution more so. And I think that oftentimes I I will usually vote liberal because I feel like they have more empathy than the people on the right. But I don't see logic in either camp, to be 100% honest with you. I see a lot of emotion and a lot of fear. And I mean, but then again, you know, I'm probably from a state of privilege in in a variety of different ways. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, no, the left and the right will never get together and hash it out. But the people in the center can try to pull the people from the right and the left a little bit into the center so they just quit acting so bad shit fucking crazy. Do you feel like things have shifted in Indiana over the past three? Like, has the climate shifted at all? Has it like, has it moved one way or the other? It's a purple state. It'll, I mean, right. It went Obama and then Trump, uh, or no, I'm sorry. It went Obama, then Romney, then make, then make, then Romney, then Trump. Um, it'll probably go Trump again. I don't see how Trump loses this election. Um, I keep hoping that he will. I, I don't see Biden as a, as a candidate that anybody is going to get persuaded by. Um, and I don't, I don't, I think the Democrats have in some ways cut their legs out from under themselves by not running Biden up the flagpole for, for his previous uh, transgressions. I, I mean, 
I don't know, man. I, I, I don't think it's shifted really anywhere. I think everybody's just locking down further into what they already were. Sadly, I, I don't write like I don't think any blue states have become more red or any red states have become more blue. Everybody's just gotten angrier and louder. So let's uh, I want to go back to your book and I want to ask you about writing uh, a teenage protagonist, a young mm-hmm. person. And I guess maybe a natural question to ask, because you mentioned it earlier, was that you were teaching for a year mm-hmm. uh, high, high school. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine you were engaging with young people and had a window into that world and mm-hmm. kind of got dialed back into what it's like to be that age, which I know, you know, anybody who makes it beyond theoretically has experience being 17, mm-hmm. 18 years old. And, but I'll be damned if I can remember precisely what it was like, you know, like it, it, it's lost to me a lot. So did, did teaching have a big impact in kind of refreshing your memory or making it accessible again? I mean, yes and no. The no part, like, so I've been teaching, you know, college for quite some time, and a lot of my students were like dual enrollment or eighteen or whatever. So I don't really feel like I lost a lot of touch with youth in terms of like how they function, but the society of a high school, you know, like the Breakfast Club style, like how a high school functions. You forget, dude. You forget how draconian things are, how bureaucratic things are, and all this kind of stuff. And um, and then you, you know, as a teacher, I kept seeing students who would like remind me of people I knew when I was in high school. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a neat it's a neat time in a person's life because you're you're basically there to see what you can get away with. And what you're going to get folded into, you know, like what group am I in and how much charisma do I have? How much shit can I get away with and who will let me hang out with them? Um, And then you take that with you into the world, right? I mean, some people are very different as they progress from their high school selves, but not not most people. Most people are kind of variation of that for forever. So it sets it sets a lot of stages, man. It's again like it ties back to that whole we judge people based on the decisions they made when they were sixteen, and that has that's not just school. That's lots of stuff, you know, like your attitude, your aesthetic, your demeanor, your confidence level, all these different things. What did you and the, you... And, and the difference between an A student and a C student is so minuscule. Like it's you, you can't even see it when you talk to them. You know what I mean? You could spend four days with them and not know the difference between one or the other. And most of it has to do with confidence and certain things like that. So when you de- when you dealt with kids who reminded you of your young self, mm-hmm. what was the what was the interaction like? It was great. I mean, I, you know, I was I was a really respected and liked teacher. Every every time I've ever taught, like. You know, when I taught college, my classes would always feel fill in like a day or two. Um, I like young people; they're neat. I even like when they're little fucking assholes. You know, I mean, but uh, you know, so like when they would come to me with their issues, I would try to. This is the part of it that was hard for me as a, as I'm not good at being authoritarian. So like, right, I had a student one time come to me and he's like, "Hey man, can I hide my vape pen in your class? Because I think they're going to call me down to the office and search me." And I'm like, one, no, you may fucking not. And two, we didn't have this conversation. 
Because I'm sure as shit not turning you in for something so innocuous as a vape pen. Because I know that the ramifications of a 17-year-old getting caught with something like that can be life-altering. Like, legit life-altering, right? Like, you can accidentally take a vape pen to school on a Tuesday. And for two years, from 17 to 19, it can be weird for you. That's kind of, that's heavy. I didn't want any part of that. And so I was like, yeah, I can't do this because I don't I don't like the system enough to be a portion of the system that tells people what they're doing is right or wrong. Yeah, I like that's a tough place to be. I oh, dude, this- it was, do you want to hear the weirdest thing? Here's the weirdest story that I have from teaching high school. And this is one of the other ones, too, where it like really just made me shocked about like what the fuck is society? even? One of my favorite students was this kid named Jay. He's, a, he's an African-American kid, but he was biracial. I think his mother was white. Um, he used to always like take people's sodas and take sips out of them, but we all loved it. I don't know. It was whatever. It was just his way of fucking around. One day he goes up to this kid who he doesn't know at all. Right. And he picks up his soda and he's about to take a sip of it. And the kid doesn't know him. You know, they're not buddies. Kid looks at him. and He's like, Hey dude, get your black mouth off my soda. I'm like, fuck, what do you do? Brad, who's, who's wrong there? Like, like you you pull the one aside and you're like, hey, dude, why are you saying that racist shit? Well, because he was going to take my soda. And why the fuck is he taking my soda? And then you're like, hey, why the fuck were you taking his soda? And he's like, did you hear what he called me? I'm like, we're at a, we're at a fucking impasse here. There's nothing you can do. That You're totally – both of them are wrong and both of them are right and both of them are assholes and both of them are great. And like, what the fuck do you even do? I, I didn't know how to answer that problem. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and tell them next year I'm not coming back because this is too fucked up. Yeah, it's a lot. I, 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 don't, I don't know what you do. That. Like, legit, I have no – I called my, my one of my best buddies, Tom Williams. He's biracial, and I, I walked into the whole thing. I was like, what do I even fucking do tomorrow? Like, what do I go say to these kids tomorrow? Like, how do I – What? And he's like, good fucking luck, bro. Good fucking luck. Well, but, I mean, wouldn't you – I'm trying to think, like – I feel like the, the, the greater transgression is the racist comment. So maybe you start there. I don't know. We did. I did. I pulled Jay. I was like, Jay, what do you want me to do this kid? You want me to turn? Well, like, what, what do you think I should do for him saying that? Jay was like, you know what, man? Nothing. If he's, he was like, maybe next time. If he's, and he, I think Jay was like, you know, maybe I was fucking being a dick. I don't know. I mean, I think you're probably right. That is the greater transgression. I also think. If Jay hadn't picked up his soda, that shit wouldn't have fucking happened. Right. You know what I mean? And yes, 100%, I agree with you. Of the two things, one is worse than the other. Of the two things, one started the other. I So it's, I don't know, dude. And I honestly, I see that as a metaphor for a lot of things in our society. I, there's, I don't know, dude. I don't even know. I don't even know where you, like, where you go after that. You know what I'm thinking when as you talk, tell me about this? It's just like, you know, I've taught college before, but I have not taught high school. Mm. And high school yeah. is high school, is like the, the amount of man hours and like how in it you are. <laughs> like you're living there. That is your life. You're in like, like you talk about it's like a world, you know, and, and uh, mm-hmm. the 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 intensity of adolescent emotional experience coupled with the fact that they're in the building there for what, eight to ten hours a day. It, it high school has a has a smell <laughs> and it it's like hormones and pheromones and all this stuff but beyond that and i think you know 
their narratives really stick with you. You, you and I, I think this is all students, but like high school students, you spend probably more time with. But like, so you know, it'll be a Saturday or like on spring break, and and you'll be worrying about one of them because you know, like you you know, because they got kicked off the diving team or something. You know what I mean? Like it's a it's just a lot of like emotion and knowledge and yeah time too i guess yeah and and you feel like there is a connection between that experience and the writing of your book and you draw a direct line or is it just sort of incidental oh 100 percent. yeah 100 percent. like the kids knew i wrote and they'd be like hey you should write a book about us and i was like that's not how it works y'all are stupid and then i did anyway but it's not really about any of them necessarily what i wanted to kind of just capture was just like that period of time and how weird it was like there were so many high school shootings that year and you know the opioids were rampant and it was just a weird time man it was a weird year now of course it seems very normal (laughs) by comparison to now but at the time it was pretty shocking to me what uh, what was the point of genesis for the book? Was it just kind of like a general feeling that you just described, or was there um, a char- like did the character come to you, or did you have a particular you know uh, theme that you were looking to explore? Like how did it how did it actually begin? I wanted to explore what it might be like to be seventeen and not have been born on the other side of the digital divide, right? So, like earlier on, we were talking about being able to remember back to when this wasn't like this, and I was—it's hard. I—I I can't really put myself in that mind. So, I was trying to explore towards that, like to understand, like what does it even mean to be seventeen now? Um, to have grown up, you know, uh, with the internet. To have grown up going like right, the kids who are going to school now went to school practicing to get shot at school. I mean, not really practicing to not get shot at school, but really you just sit against a wall. I don't really know how that's practicing to not get shot, but like you definitely have murder drills in high school now. Like everybody has murder drills in high school. That's fucked up, dude. That's so fucked up. That's it's so fucked up. You lock the door. Everybody sits in the dark. Hey, this is what we'll do if somebody wants to murder us. And you do that a few times a semester, you know, and it's like and that's I mean, and that's the world these people are in. That's I don't like why. I don't know how you can expect somebody to want to grow up and be a part of anything. Like I was just thinking like I was just thinking I was just thinking like no wonder people are on opioids. (laughs) Oh, dude. Well, and, and it's everything. It's not just that, but like, you know, I mean, the fucking president's on Twitter, you know, like, what the fuck? If the president's on Twitter, you're practicing to get murdered. You know, like, everybody's fucked up. There are no adults. We're all screaming racist shit at each other. It's a trip, dude. And, you know, I was kind of hoping that the coronavirus would kind of kick us in the ass and we'd all kind of like bond up and be fucking humans against a, a plague. And I don't see that. <laughs> I don't see that at all. If anything, we're getting worse. Yeah. People are, people are losing it a little bit. I feel like. Mm-hmm. hundred percent. And I, you know, I mean, what I will say is that hopefully what people are doing is realizing that 
most important part of your life is actually just the time you spend at your home with the people who are closest to you. You know, I mean, honestly, if people care, if people were more selfish about their immediate time and their immediate family and their immediate friends, if they were just more selfish about being like, you know, I don't give a fuck about the entirety of the world. I'm just going to focus on my community. The world would be a better place. But instead, we've bought into this lie that what you're supposed to do is give a little bit of a shit about fucking everything. And all that does is spread you thin, man. And then you got nothing. You got a whole lot of bullshit, in my opinion. Hmm. I could so, be wrong. Or maybe I'm just getting old, though, too. Like, I'm listening to myself talk. I sound very 41. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I think that... Uh... I think that paying more attention to one's community and to the people, friends and family in the, you know, their immediate sphere, it's never bad advice. You know, we do need to get more connected. I think some of that's lost because of uh, a variety of circumstances, like living online there's, too much and um, being having to, having to work in weird places, you know, having to be uh, scattered all over the place and you lose track of people. And there's a beautiful thing about like being more aware of everybody's struggles throughout the world and stuff too. And I mean, there's an argument for that hundred percent. Um, you know, when I was growing up, there was this idea that like you needed to be more knowledgeable about like, you want to be up on current events. So you understand what's happening in the world. And, but anymore, I feel like current events are like 70% propaganda. So it's like, I don't even know, man. I mean, like all this shit that was like 100% true when I was a kid is not 100% true anymore. And I'm only 41. Well, the environment's shifted. I mean, yeah, 100%. You know, I mean, it's like when we, I mean, I'm 44, but when I was a kid, mm. there were, there were, I mean, really, there were three news news networks. Yeah, you know? yeah. Everybody no, got true. And- everybody got the newspaper. Now you can have your own reality. You know, you can live mm-hmm. in your little like algorithm silo, and you can have your opinions uh, reinforced all day long. Which is, you know, good good for some people and bad for others. And but that's the other kind of thing that's great about now. Maybe is that like there's a lot of different ways to to exist. So maybe that's kind of the silver lining of everything, you know, of like us breaking down into tribes and stuff or whatever we're doing right now um, is at least we are definitely more inclusive. There's definitely more ways where you can find success and happiness. There's more avenues for that, but it's at the expense of common experience. And so we don't have a lot of common experiences with people that we come into contact with all the time. And so it's a trade off. It's a trade off. Well, I want to ask you about your uh, the, the illustrations in your book. Mm, Did you Jim draw... Agpalza. What's that? No, I can't draw for shit. Oh. Uh, Jim Agpalza is is my illustrator. Um, not for this, just this book. Like he's like, if I need something drawn, and so he did the cover of Motherfucking Sharks, and he's done some other stuff for me. And uh, I hope I get to work with him for the rest of my life. To be honest with you, like kind of like a Ralph Steadman Hunter S. Thompson relationship. Yeah, why not, you know? <laughs> or, yeah, something like that. Yeah, for sure. Maybe less drugs. Uh, yeah, less drugs but that. <laughs> what are you working on now? You got anything else cooking or is it, does it, like, it seems like things come to you and then you write them pretty quickly. And so you're not one of the, are you, are you work, like a writer every day or you just do it when you got a book, like, brewing? I... 
I don't always type. So like in my head, I think about writing and typing and editing. Those are my three kind of stages. I always write, but that doesn't always lead to anything. I And then when I type, though, that's like when I'm kind of cr- like in an actual creation stage. So I'll sit down and type little bits here and there. And I try to like ascertain what the project is going to be. And then once I feel like I have a pretty decent understanding of what I should be doing, both the aesthetic of it and then the premise of it and then the trajectory of it, then I'll just go. Like I'll make my I'll have my wife and kids go do fun stuff for the weekend and I'll just lock myself to the computer. And I'm hoping to have another book done in about a month and a half from now, or at least in the stage where I'm showing it to my uh, agent and he's deciding whether or not it's worth a shit. What about your uh, your family? What, do they read your books? What do your folks mm-hmm. think? What do your folks think of your uh, your books? They're the they're my biggest fans. My mom and dad. <laughs> my dad loves my books. Uh, my dad's super happy that he's the father of a writer. My mom is too. Um, they're cool people, you know. Like my dad has a PhD in theology, and so like we always talked about religion and shit growing up, and. Um, and my mom has a PhD in in in, uh, in nursing, and she's really into something called grounded theory. And um, she got her PhD later. My dad got his when I was like ten. But uh, so you know, they're they're cool. They're cool people. They're weird as fuck. Um, my br- older brother committed suicide, so they they have like a lot of darkness in their soul, <laughs> as you would. Did, um, did we talk about this last time? I'm so sorry that I, I can't I, recall. No, 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 it's fine. I'd imagine so. Um, most likely. I was 21 when he died. He was 23. And so, you know, I, and so they're, they're really supportive of both me and my sister. Uh, you know, they're, uh, I think a lot of what they do through their lives is try to do, in, in rehab, you would call it a living amends where they try to be supportive of my sister and I because, you know, we're their two living children or whatever. And, uh, but yeah, they're, you know, the, my dad texts me all the time about, Hey, did you see this and this by this and the, you know, he's, he'll text me like these screenshots of like Amazon reviews that people have done on my books and stuff. You know, like he's a trip. He's a trip. <laughs> Proud father. He is, you know, and it's kind of funny. Cause I'm like, Dad, I'm 41, and I write rated our books. You really don't have to care, you know. Like you, you don't have to give a shit about any of this. But they're cool, man. They're cool folks. And you say, like you alluded to it uh, a second ago, but it sounds like like your relationship shifted after your brother took his life. Like that changed the dynamic. They became, hundred percent. My mom, I would say, became stronger. My dad became. Uh, more suspicious of the world. Uh, my relationship with both of them ultimately got better than it had been prior to him passing away. Um, different, you know, but uh, yeah, we, I mean, we all changed dramatically after that, of course, right? Like my sister and I, and my parents and yeah, I mean, I'm not even, you know, shit, it's been 20 years and I'm still not the same, you know, I still feel the toll that it took on me, if that makes sense. No, no. I, I lost a close friend when I was 20 to suicide. And I still say mm-hmm. it's, I think it was like a pivotal uh, mm-hmm. ex- experience. Like I, you don't, you don't, 
heal. You just you develop a scar, mm-hmm. you know, and there's no closure. Hundred <laughs> percent. Well, and then for me, and I don't know if we talked about this last time or not. Uh, my brother was like found in a car on fire, and like there was no suicide note, and it was kind of suspicious. Like we hired a private investigator. We're ninety two percent certain he committed suicide, but maybe not. Um, and so, like for me, it's like I don't even. Yeah, like it's probably a lot worse for my parents because they 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 don't have any closure at all. And I think my dad will oftentimes – I don't think my dad wants to still to this day think that my brother killed himself. He still wants to think that he was like murdered and like, okay, cool. You can choose to think that. We're never going to find out for sure, you know, whatever. I, I don't – and I'm, here's the other thing. I don't know which is the better thing. Like, I, I don't – I like – you know what I mean? Like because for five, six, seven years, like that was the thing that really – chewed on my brain i was like well which one's better to have had happen you know so so um, it's a trip and you say 92 percent certain like you got enough forensic evidence that it seems that way yeah like we did toxicology reports and all that kind of stuff and uh i think there were three reports on his death two of them were for sure one of them was accidental death by fire one was suicide and one was inconclusive or something like that um, but you know, I knew him really well. He did have a kind of strain of depression and alcoholism, uh, alcoholism much as myself. And it's not beyond the pale to think that he committed suicide. The murder story would have to be, I don't know what that would even look like. It would have to almost be quasi conspiratorial. So, but like I said, I mean, my, I'm, my dad probably, you know, is of the opinion that he was that he was not a suicide um and maybe he's right i don't know i have yeah. no idea yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's understandable understandable as a yeah. parent you know you'd want to go there oh yeah yeah and oh and i can't even imagine like you know because i got an 11 year old and a six-year-old i i didn't realize what they must have gone through until and not and not until i had kids but until my kids were old enough to like have personalities and shit I have no idea the torment that my mom must still go through. That's her first baby, you know. Like I'm sure that was fucked up, dude. And you know, I don't. I don't even know. I like. I can't even imagine if my daughter Georgia died. Oh Jesus! I don't even know what I'd do. I would. I would literally just wander the earth, probably getting fucked up, and hopefully not. But you know, who knows? Well, I was going to say, you know, it's it's interesting watching people grieve over the years. Like everybody does it differently. People respond in ways yeah. that can surprise you. Like you'll see, you'll think like this person's going to go off the deep end, and they wind up, you know, showing mm-hmm. all like having all this like strength that you could never see, and they wind up, you know, I don't know, sort of rallying. And then you'll see people, yeah. you'll see people go the other direction too. So it's uh, it's not one size fits all. No, and I and that's what I'd say. Like my mom, she she's a beast, man. Like she 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 went to school, got her PhD. She's like in a hospital administrator now. When we were kids, she was a nurse, and you know, and my dad. I mean, he's still an awesome guy, but it definitely it didn't prompt him to be more uh, productive. And I get that too. In fact, if it had happened to me, I would I'd probably be more like my dad than my mom. I think. Who knows? But it's yeah who knows yeah i mean yeah and and you can't like 
I'm not about to <laughs> not about to lay judgment. I mean, who, you know, people going through that kind no, of grief. And, well, and you'll you know, everybody wants to think that they'll handle stuff well, uh, but you, nobody ever knows until nothing happens until it happens. That's right. That's right. Um, well, I, uh, I guess like this next book, you got about a month to crank through it and then <laughs> off to the agent, your agent then will tell you if it's worth a shit. That's the process. Yeah, usually. <laughs> well, that's been the process for the past two. And, and usually, um, I mean, have you ever had a situation where he's like, yeah, n- not this one, do another one? No, he, de- no, not at all. He's, he's, he's been super supportive of, of the majority of the stuff that I've done. I'll, but I know if it's, if I don't have a lot of energy and excitement for the project, it's going to go south. Like if I get 30 pages in and I'm already like having to try to, and I I just start folding too much stuff in, it's going to go south. Um, So I like to kind of circle a project a little bit longer. Once I finally realize that like, okay, this is the thing that needs to happen. Then I really just go whole hog on it. Um, if I finish something, I, I want to publish it. I never finish anything and be like, that's not good enough to send out. Cause if I get halfway through something, I'll, I know whether or not I, sh- I should finish it hmm. well, for cool. me. And it's different for everybody, but you know, yeah, well, I wish you luck on it. It's been fun talking Thanks. with you. And, uh, hey, hope... you too, man. Sorry, sorry that I was such a pain or, uh, you know, getting around. <laughs> no, it's just, the, it's just the technology, you know, doing all these interviews remotely. We got to yeah. deal with the machines. But uh, hope you and your family are safe and well. It sounds like you are. Hang in there, and uh, best of luck on the next book. Hey, man, thank you so very much. Okay, that's Brian Allen Carr. His new novel is called Opioid Indiana. It is out there now from Soho Press. Brian Allen Carr, Opioid, Indiana. I don't think he's got any kind of web presence at the moment. I'm looking around for it. It's not easy to find. But his book is easy to find. It's called Opioid, Indiana. Go get your copy immediately. If you like this program, support this program. Every episode of this show is available for free. It's a free show. It is a listener-supported program, and your support makes a difference. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have something to say, you want to share your thoughts, you can email me. The uh, the, uh, email address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget to register to vote. Get yourself set up for uh, voting by mail if you need to. Do that now. Figure it out. Get on it. Don't forget this program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Wherever you get your apps, go get the app. Thanks again to Doubleday for sponsoring today's program. Be sure to get a copy of Pizza Girl by Gene Keong Frazier, available now from Doubleday. I've got uh, Meredith Toulousen coming up on the program next. Meredith Toulousen. Very fascinating writer and person in conversation, so stay tuned for that. It's a lot to keep up with, 2020, is it not? 
like this week we just get like the, the news that the president has committed blatant treason and yet the uh, GOP in Congress and the senators in particular can't be bothered to do anything about it that's where we are for the record bullshit <laughs>